0: Happy summer, everybody, and welcome to another very special episode of Ignite Radio Live.
1: You are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio for the Almighty. Woo-hoo.
0: So, Stephanie, this week is very consequential for a number of reasons, not the least of which is you, my beautiful, beloved wife said yes to me 26 years ago this week and 25 years ago this week we participated in the life of the Trinity. We are celebrating 25 years of our marriage. I love you so much. I just want to proclaim that.
1: Right back at you. And I'm glad it's not the least of which. So thank you for that. Indeed. <laughs>
0: the iconography of the Trinity. Um, it's good to just understand that whatever confusion the world holds, we should hear the father declare over us Genesis one 27. We're yearning to see his face and in his image, he made them male and female. That's our Unsurpassed identity, and it is most richly, beautifully revealed in marriage and family life. Just share with our audience a little bit the, about I Love My Family. Us,
1: so it's where we are inviting you to go to join us more deeply into this great adventure of family. You know, as you mentioned, Greg, that the great icon of the Trinity is marriage and family, and we don't need to explain in any <laughs> depth whatsoever um, to see that that is under attack. Mm. We provide different opportunities um, and ideas for families to come together to talk and to pray, to discover their identity Mm -hmm. as a family in the Trinity. You know, it sounds so simple, but for so many of us, and for even the most involved, solid, if you will, Catholics and Christians, um, they have a hard time. We have a hard time sometimes just going there mm. and for various reasons, right? So it provides an opportunity, an easy guide to, to talk and pray, as I said. There's, the, um, there's family fun questions. There's daily questions to kind of get that going, to get those conversations going, to kind of jumpstart some relational mm. currency together. And then the, the, um, the real focus is the upcoming Sunday readings, mm. to, to pray with them together, to ask questions, to share insights. So it, it, it's blessed many people. We hope it blesses you. I love my family.us. Even the name is a proclamation mm-hmm. which needs to be proclaimed loudly from the rooftops, mm-hmm. as JP2 says. Um, so we invite you to join us and go there.
0: It's not easy also to ask for help, but this movement depends upon your prayers and it depends upon your support. Um, Over nine years, our media has reached millions of people, literally millions of people. Over 40,000 have participated in our events. And perhaps most notably, hundreds have said yes to gathering their families together on a weekly basis to talk and pray. This radio program is a result of this movement and so many other things. Um, We're in need. I'm just going to state that. We are in need to continue this movement. I know it's a difficult time. I know the economy is difficult. And uh, by the way, we just as an organization want to pour ourselves out to support you know, all of those wonderful Catholics in every arena, uh, support to parents and families. We've seen so many miracles take place. So I'm just asking you to please prayerfully consider partnering with us if you're not already. I love my family us. You'll see the partner tab right there. No amount is too little and probably no amount is too great because we do have a great vision, which you could find out more about if you click on that tab. But please prayerfully consider supporting us. OK, we're going to move on very quickly to a final commercial and uh, just announcing, by the way, with our next series of Belief and Beverages. It really is going to be amazing. It's going to begin in August, and the theme is incarnation. We're kind of pulling out the word nation from incarnation. They're going to be reflections on the nature of one nation under God, reflections on recovering one nation under God by four amazing Hillsdale professors. Four consecutive months beginning in August. It's going to be particularly for our members, so it's another reason we want you to partner with us at ILoveMyFamily.us. Click on that partner tab and we will invite you, include you to be part of that incredible series that we're looking forward to. So this commercial, I guess this is the second commercial, final commercial, and we'll get on with our wonderful speaker, Monsignor Michael Billion. Um, We want to support Catholic business owners and leaders who are committed to professional excellence and building the kingdom through their company. And the following, we are so grateful for them. You can find out more about them at massimpact.us forward slash kingdom. So, all in one payroll, Sherry Glenneman.
1: Archbold Furniture Company, Pat and Patty McNamara.
0: Becoming Gift, Andrew Reinhardt.
1: Carpets by Otto, Otto and D. Weick.
0: Carruth Studio, Terry Langenderfer.
1: Cronin Auto Family, Rich and Connie Cronin.
0: Interstate Commercial Glass, Walter Erickson.
1: Isabel Financial Services, Dennis Isabel.
0: MFC Products, Miller Fastener and Components, Paul Miller.
1: McCartney Coaching, Mike McCartney.
0: Resourceman, Jeff Barefoot.
1: Rob Holler, Key Realty, Rob Holler.
0: Quarry Hawk Medical, William Noltner. Signature Associates
1: Megan Malcheski. SJS Investment Services Kevin Kelly. Turning Point Chiropractic Doctors Jeff and Rachel Elmore.
0: And Westgate Insurance Agency Stephen Malcheski. Again, we warmly invite you to please uh, consider supporting them who supports so many of us in so many ways. You can find out their contact information at massimpact.us forward slash kingdom. And even on the right, you'll see some very fun little uh, kingdom builder. We call them profiles where they share fun little tidbits about their marriage and family and all that. Again, you can find that at massimpact.us forward slash kingdom. With no further ado, so blessed by this amazing fifth night in our second series of Belief in Beverages, led by Monsignor Michael Billion.
1: So our speaker, as you know, is Monsignor Billion, presently pastor at St. Joe's in Sylvania, St. Joseph's. Is it okay to say St. Joseph's, everyone? I'm not the local, you know, St. Joe's, Um, which obviously I know we just love St. Joseph, right? So um, I could read through his resume of sorts, Monsignor's resume, but I just want to just just a few quick little thoughts because those of you who know me know I can tend to go on and on. But um, not only does he have the coolest handwriting that I've seen in a very long time, his signature is so perfect. The sisters would be so proud. This former teacher is proud. I think that says a lot about somebody. Not only is he a phenomenal cook, chef extraordinaire, which we've been blessed to partake of, um, but as Greg said And those Facebookers out there, he always honors people on their birthdays, which is a cool thing. Um, Just a real uh, acknowledgement and beautiful way to, I think, um, show the dignity of each person's life, personal life. Um, But as Greg said, he's celebrating going into your 38th year of priesthood. And so when we first were moving here, Um, We actually put a bid in on a house in the neighborhood of Blessed Sacrament, which is where Monsignor was pastor at the time. And I think he bugged, Greg bugged the heck out of him, asking about the neighborhood and all these different programs and this and that. And um, Monsignor was very patient and answered questions and was just a great sense of support and welcome when we did move here. Um... But I want to say, in in light of the Feast of Pentecost that we just celebrated, as I was um, thinking about what to say and how to introduce you, Monsignor, the uh, Feast of Pentecost, we refer to the Holy Spirit as the advocate. And in regards to his priesthood, I've heard some very heartfelt stories from different people, priests and lay alike, who wouldn't be where they're at without Monsignor and his heart and his priesthood and in his advocacy for them. So in this ministry, I feel um, a great sense of gratitude to you and your priesthood because we feel that also and have felt that as you welcomed our ministry into Most Blessed Sacrament Parish, um, your friendship and your care of this ministry. And so we welcome you warmly and we thank you for joining us tonight.
2: that introduction was longer than my talk. (laughs) I've chosen an interesting topic, a topic that I've been keenly interested in for um, perhaps about a year and a half, or maybe a little longer, and uh, trying to get my arms around how I can be a better pastor, and what I need to do uh, in order to serve the church uh, in a way that would be effective in today's world. And uh, while I was struggling, actually, to kind of understand this, a book was written, um, which put better words on it than my I did. So uh, I'll give a, just a little advertisement for the book, From Christendom to Apostolic Mission. Um, it's going to probably be a focus of the diocese in, in the near, very near future, if it hasn't started in your own parish already. Uh, and the second thing that I uh, experienced in a very uh, deep way was when I was serving as the pastor at the University of Toledo. Um, I had known uh, the work of Focus for a long time and got to know Curtis Martin, the founder of that ministry, and uh, the experience, and we brought Focus to the University of Toledo when I was there. And the experience of their process on engaging people uh, kind of touched my heart in a way that I thought would be a good thing to transfer just off the university campus, but to the church as a whole. So that's how I've come to kind of reflect on the topic that we're going to uh, engage in this evening, and I hope for your sake you feel invited to truly engage in it. Um, I'm better in conversation, uh, even though I'll present some information, but I hope that you'll feel free to, uh, to speak up, ask questions, share thoughts as we move through this process together. Stephanie mentioned that we just celebrated the Feast of Pentecost just a week and a half ago, and uh, that was the ending of the Easter season, the last day of the Easter season. And all through the Easter season, those 50 days from Easter to Pentecost, every single day uh, in the church, we had the opportunity to listen to part of the Book of the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles—it's kind of like the uh, volume two of Saint Luke's Gospel. And the topic is all about the early church and the process uh, that they went through in the early church to come to uh, feel courageous, uh, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, one that they uh, learned at the feet uh, of Jesus himself and how that grew. And the ups and downs, uh, the challenges and the successes, the joys and the sorrows of those very early years of the church. And I'd like to point to three little snippets of disciples' experiences to help us lay the groundwork for perhaps what we need to think about as we live in the church today and live in the world and encounter both of them. First, St. Peter, he's meeting up, talking to all Jews, he's trying to tell them about Jesus Christ. And at the end of his experience, he baptizes 3,000 people. That's a pretty good preacher, don't you think? You know? But think about who he was talking to. He was talking to people who already were hoping for a Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah. They had common ground with St. Peter because he was a Jew, And so they were one in the same spirit as he told the story. All he had to say to them was, listen, I found the guy that we've been waiting for forever. And here he is. And you want to be one with him and join to one another? Be baptized. Success. In the eyes of faith. That's one episode. Next episode. We're at Lystra. Lystra. With Paul and Barnabas, and you know Lystra is not an easy community. Not going to be as easy as the Jewish community that Peter was talking to. Same message, trying to explain the same person of Jesus Christ to them, and what and they perform miracles as the apostles often did when they were uh, sharing this mystery of Christ with the people they encountered, and those people at Lystra looked right at Paul and Barnabas because. Of their experience they decided here is Zeus and Hermes right here in our midst and they started to turn those two into gods and they oh no 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 we you know we're not we're not don't look at us you know we're here to convert faith in Jesus and they couldn't make the jump their experience of their faith experience very different than Judaism came to be troublesome because they just assumed they were gonna be part of their faith experience and this is who they were. Not such a great success story. Snapshot number three, Paul, the Aragopagus. In the midst of the Greek community, the learned philosophical Greek community And he expounds about this God. You know, he looked all around and he saw all the altars set up there. One for every different God. for God for this and God for that and God for this. And then to the unknown God. And he makes the point. I'm here to tell you who that unknown God is. And they all looked at him and said, well, that's very interesting. We'd like to hear about this some other time. And walked away. Not quite a great experience for conversion of hearts. Same message, three different places, three very different effects. Not all, in the eyes of the world, very successful. One yes, the other two no. But that has been the story, our story, the story of the church since the very beginning. You know, we have not had an easy go ever. There's always been the ups and downs. And how we decide to make the presence of Christ known in the world and in the hearts of the people, how we decide to make it known in our spouse's heart, in the children's heart, in our neighborhoods, in our parishes, in the church, and in the world, we have to know who we're talking to. We have to know our audience before we can start. It's an important lesson for us to learn as the church. Same message proclaimed in all those experiences of the early church, but a different strategy was required in each of those situations because the people had a very different experience that they were bringing, trying to speak and bring Christ to. There are really two ways as we think about how the church could operate. And um, we call them modes of operating. And they deal with two different sets of realities. And thus the title of the talk today. We have an apostolic mode of experience. And we have a Christendom mode of experience. The first is the apostolic mode. And it is really How the church engages the world. And we engage the world to build the kingdom of God. Ultimately, that's the purpose. To build the kingdom of God. But we have to engage the world in order to do that. And there are two different ways in which we can happen in general. There are probably 50 different ways. But two general modes that we can operate under. An apostolic mode. You know, it's a mode where the society's vision is not Christian. And often, the Christian faith is at odds with the culture. And this is how the church operated for the first three centuries or so. And even in parts of the world today, the church still operates in that fashion whenever they're doing missionary work, going into a community that doesn't have Uh, Christian faith is part of their world, and yet we're doing missionary work there. Society's vision is not Christian, and faith is often at odds with the culture. Faith tends in these situations to actually be purer, primarily because faith in those situations are costly you have more on the line from the eyes of the world in those situations. You profess your faith in some of those situations in those early years, you were put to death for it. You thought twice about making the sign of the cross so someone could see you. But when you did, you were more serious about it because that act of faith cost you more than a situation where everybody is all the same. But if we want to engage the world and that is what the Lord calls us to, to build the kingdom of God, then we have to engage the world. So the faith in those situations in an apostolic mode is more costly. It's harder to be faithful in those situations and live a life of faith and worship. So that's a snapshot of apostolic mode. The other is Christendom mode. That's kind of where society's vision is mostly Christian. And the faith is part of the institutions, the vision of the institutions in society. You know, where we have universities that uh, work together and not only teach academic areas, but they're infused with the... uh, Essence of God, whether that be a particular religious university or a public university. There were times even in our own nation where that was the, the case. Our health care systems are not uh, standing adverse to the ways of the faith, but they're united in one sense. Uh, our families, you know, we do, you know, think about how hard you work in order to keep your families united in faith And sometimes that's very easy. In a Christendom mode, everything around them is based in a Christian atmosphere. Not necessarily exclusive Christian, but Christian virtues and values are very much a part of society. God's truth is readily available to everyone in this Christendom mode of experience. But there can be a temptation... That following Christ in this, working in this mode, can lose its character. Really, because you really want to be on the great quest for leading, you know, moving into a great destiny. And that doesn't always happen because, you know, everybody's in this mode. Okay, we're just going to be good. We'll be a good member of society, and that'll be enough. So that's the challenge of a Christendom mode. The time of Christ's ministry and the apostles, the early church was purely an apostolic age. The church is not a major influence in society or in the culture's vision for life at all. There's a lot less hypocrisy in the faith during this apostolic time because it's tougher and you're more committed to that it's more like a humanistic or materialistic time and what do we do the pastoral practices of living the church out in an apostolic age um, small encounters that are personal touching individuals lives and then bringing them into the community if you take a snapshot of this early time in the church nice little uh, list of uh, resources that were available uh, to the church bishops they had 11 priests the same 11 deacons none trained theologians none religious orders none seminarians none Seminaries, none. Christian believers, a few hundred. Countries with Christians in them, one. Church buildings, none. Schools and universities, none. Written gospels, none. Money, very little. Experience in foreign missions, none. Influential contacts in high places, Next to none. Society, societal attitudes toward the faith, ignorant to hostile. That's the story of the early church. And from those 11 apostles, look what happened. Without any of those resources, look what happened. An amazing. Amazing change. And do you think it was because of humanity? Well, certainly because of people's generous spirit in sharing their gifts and talents. But ultimately, it's because of Pentecost. It's all about the power of the spirit, the power of God, and allowing that power to take root in our lives and allowing us to embrace the courage it takes in order to accomplish what the Lord has asked us to do. So that's a snapshot of the apostolic age. Then what happened? Christianity grew significantly. Christianity was illegal for 300 years, and all of a sudden, it becomes required in the Roman Empire. Required. You had to be Christian. That was the rule, because whatever the emperor was, that was your religion. So Theodosius, baptized Christian, required it in the empire. And what happened at that very moment is that it was the birth of Christendom, where Christianity had influence then on the life of the society. It was good. And then, of course, century after century, up and down, this country and that company, country, up and down. Well, it really isn't religiously exclusively Christian. It is based on Christian and moral principles. And Christians and their principles begin influencing and guiding the culture outside of the church. The church begins to expand into the everyday culture, the way of the world, the institutions that are formed. The major institutions of society at the time often were first sponsored by the church before any public institutions were born. The church would have been had a hand in making all of those a reality. So if we're living in that kind of age, the pastoral practices are different. You establish and maintain Programs and patterns of study, um, knowledge becomes very important. So the the development of theologies and the thinking about faith is much more important and taught. And groups are brought together to learn the lessons of the faith. Where in the apostolic age, you know, we didn't have a catechism. We didn't have. We didn't even have a copy of the Gospels. You know, but we had the living experience of 11 men who personally knew Christ that passed the story on, and that's how the church was born. So we think about, for a moment, these two different modes of operating. And the church in this country enjoyed a great time of Christendom really a phenomenal time, when our Catholic schools were packed, couldn't build them fast enough, our churches were loaded with people, programs abounded left and right, our healthcare systems expanded and grew, religious orders came and were established, we had more priests than we knew what to do with, and that was Christendom alive and at work in the United States of America. But literally, I would say, in the last 20 years, there have become cracks in Christendom in the United States of America. And the culture is less and less Christianized. The struggles of raising our children, our grandchildren, in an age that is not a Christendom age, is a great challenge for parents and grandparents today. For schools, keeping healthcare systems lined up with Christian values and the value and dignity of every human person is a challenge in the world today. So we would say, I would say, a few other people might say along with me, that we are We need to begin to think about us being in an apostolic mode. And we need to shift gears because we need to act differently. Our strategies need to be different. You don't change the message. You don't change the sacraments. You don't change the scriptures. But your strategy at sharing them and implementing them in the lives of our people need to be more like the apostolic times, than they are in the time of Christendom. So how do we do that? And I would say that this is a question that needs to come into the hearts of everyone who follows in the faith. We cannot leave this question to the bishops or to the priests and our pastors or the people who work in our parishes Remember what happened in the early church. We didn't have any of that. We didn't have parishes. We didn't have structures. We didn't have buildings. We didn't have schools. So we need to think outside the box. Because if we don't do anything, or we do things just the way we've always done them, we'll get the same results that we're getting today. And those results don't match what the Lord calls us to. Those results don't match us to be really great builders of the kingdom of God in our families, in our parishes, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in the church. We have to discover the right way in order to do that. And let me say that, remember, the apostles had no manual They used their basic instincts and they found great faithfulness in the work that they did and the people they encountered by their personal contact with those people. First of all, coming to know them first, not thinking ourselves better than them, because I've got God and you don't, or I've got Christ and you don't. And so we need to think about ways to do that and do that very well. Our institutions, from my vantage point, need to be more self-conscious about their mission. What is our mission? We can't lose sight of that, and everything we do needs to be grounded in making that mission a reality in people's lives, in our families' lives, in our parishes, in our communities. We need to be very conscious and intentional about our missions. Not only the mission, but the the aims of the mission, and really the inner spirit of the mission that we're placed in, to build the kingdom of God where we have to realize that we will work against a certain level of hostility from some people. You know, we see that often when uh, the church begins to stand up for one issue or another. There's hostility about the sharing of that position. There's also a great deal of apathy on a part of those positions. Not only people on the outside being very hostile to the church and to the mission, the message, but a lot of people within the church who are just apathetic about it. They don't get excited about any of it. They don't put their intention and their, their, uh, their strength and their courage into it at all. They're just apathetic about it. We need, in my, in my opinion and in the opinion of many others, including our present Pope, to create missionary disciples. Not just disciples, not just disciples. Think about what a disciple is. The number one job of a disciple is to introduce Christ to another person. That's the job of a disciple. Everyone who's designated as a disciple in the scriptures, that's what they did. They introduced Christ to somebody else. That made you a disciple. We're called to even do more than that. We need to be a missionary disciple. Not just to once in a while when we encounter somebody, bring that message to them, introduce Christ to them. We need to be intentional missionary disciples. We need to plan it. We need to work it. We need to have it in our heart and our willingness to share it. And I think that one of the ways that I impresses me the most that I have found is the work that I experienced with Young people, when I worked on a university campus, the manual is this big. Okay, not not tough. You can read it; it's big print, and lots of space. You know, so you can get at it and get it, get through it quickly. Uh, it's it's written by Curtis Martin, who was the founder of Focus, and um, it's literally how to live the method modeled by the master. That's what he calls it, making missionary disciples. And he has really three actions that are part of this process. Simple. Win, build, send. That's it. Win, build, send. How do we win people? We encounter them we talk to them we get to know them we spend time with them and not coming in with your book you, you know i'm going to i'm going to spend some time here and we're going to we're going to read this bible and you're going to get it right and i'm going to like pound you over the head with it that would not be the way to start if you want to really get in with somebody but to care about them as a person remember very important all the people that we encounter whether they agree with us, whether they're part of our church, whether they're Christian or not, are children of God. That's the starting point. Every single one of them is a child of God. That's what we are. And so we share a common bond, even though we may not speak the same way, think the same way, we meet them at that level because that's where we are the same. And you encounter them, first step. And really encounter them with a sense of authentic friendship. You know, which puts people on a, a common ground together, equal ground together, time together. And then, once that happens, then you begin to build on that base that you have, that we've kind of built together in this encounter. And that's to walk with them on their personal journey, accompany then to be a person of accompaniment. And what happens, I saw it happen for the years I was on the university campus, how that changed people's lives. To be able to have that kind of experience with people who were committed to their own faith and committed to sharing that with others. A real clarity of convic- conviction to just build on what you have already to accompany them. And eventually, the place that, that Making Missionary Disciples takes us is to what um, Curtis Martin calls spiritual multiplication. Uh, I bring Christ to one person. That's all I care about right now. The person here. The encounter, hopefully, because they are not ever left alone, they have an authentic friend, they then share the story with somebody else. And then they share the story with somebody else. And the numbers, the multiplication of bringing people to Christ grows immensely. You haven't entered a church yet. You've had faith-filled discussions. Perhaps you use a Bible study to, to start to do that. But it is the beginning of bringing Christ in what I would call operating in an apostolic mode, like the early church operated when they started with nothing. So I'm sorry to say that I think when we look around our society today, there are areas where they, we have to start thinking there's nothing and build up from there. So, you have this sense of spiritual multiplication, building, and then, obviously, sending. You people have this experience of Christ, they get invited to church, they become involved in a little more of the parish life, the church life. And so we have to think about different pastoral practices when we do that. You know, in Christendom mode, we offer great programs that have lots of intellectual Um, uh, theology being passed on in this mode no we have a personal encounter with Christ a more approach in formation rather than education both are important but not the starting point you know we need to help, help bring formation to people form them from who they are as children of God into disciples So we do have to do things different. And we have to do things different as parents, as um, pastors, as bishops, in order to recognize that we're not in the same old way of doing things in the 50s or the 40s. Things are very different today. And if we want to accomplish what the Lord has asked us to do, to help him build his kingdom here where we live, in this particular time, I think we have to find this way to really be on apostolic mission in our world today, in every venue, where we work, where we live, where we pray, where we socialize. You know, think about a, an age of Christendom, even when you look around this very city. You know, this city, you know, had 35 parishes within the city boundaries, more beyond there, just around the city, 35. Half of them national parishes. They came over from one part of the world or another, and the parish was the center of their lives. They prayed there, they went to social events there, they went to school there, their friends were there, that's where they met each other, that's where you met your wife, your husband, That was the life of the church, where the church was the center of the life of the family. Well, we have, I don't know, how many parishes are now, 20? Maybe 20 parishes and half full, you know, today, maybe. Maybe some not even that. But very different scenario. Doesn't necessarily mean the number of Catholics has stopped, has been going down. The number of people engaged in the life of the church has certainly decreased. What do we do about that? We have to change our strategies at inviting them. We have to think about win, build, send, in order to invite them back into the family of God in an active way, without condemning them, without doing anything, offering them any ill will. But remember the gift that we have I mean, we've got the greatest gift in the world to share, the person of Christ. And why would we not want to share that? Why would we not want to find the right way to deliver Christ to other people? I'll do it very different than you, and that's the way it should be. Because while we're all children of God, we all have been given different sets of gifts and talents. Another challenge that we have to deal with in the church is we can't walk away from one mode and just leave it behind and start the new mode. We really have to live using living and exercising both modes because our people are at very different places in our communities. And so we, it's like doubling up on work. And, it's, and I would say it's the same thing in your family. You have to double up on the work. There are some things that you need to just keep doing, and other things that you need to do new. And that's a challenge, and no one's written a book about that, so Brett, I think that you should write it um, on how to do both at the same time and, and get it done. So that's the story of who we are. That's our faith story, and it's our story. It belongs to us just as the old testament and the new testament belongs to us as our faith story this is the story that's been unfolding ever since the end of the scriptures in the life of the church and so we have to claim it just because it is real and so we also have to take responsibility for it so that's the challenge that's before us not easy But nonetheless, a great challenge, a beautiful challenge, because it comes from Christ. And nothing but goodness can come from Christ. And that's what we're called to. So, what do you wanna talk about? What do you think?
0: so moved by your words and witness, Monsignor. Both of those words important. Your words, but knowing that you give great witness to them and you give us a space in our incompleteness to maybe consider our own lives and how can we lean into this power of the Holy Spirit more. Um, I was thinking as you were speaking, the image of wilderness came to mind. We're in a wilderness. The wilderness has been a powerful metaphor throughout salvation history, but have we ever experienced it in this unique way? No, but it is formidable. So wilderness, and then the, the promise of the gospel, those who are walking in darkness or in the wilderness have seen a great light. So my gratitude to you is you illuminated such clarity and a roadmap of God's design and his desire for us. So I'm deeply grateful for that. If I could just start off with a question, then any other commentary or questions. I think we live in a time that's unique in that we have a culture where People question the nature of truth itself. We know every person, as you indicated, is fashioned. Their appetites are made for God, but the enemy has caused this confusion of your truth is yours, mine is mine, and and what I desire is its own validation of truth. And we know that those arguments just declare this. That's not going to be won by an intellectual argument. I get that. Give us clarity, though, on how can we address a postmodern deconstructionist world that questions the nature of truth itself in order to not just win points, but when people, and how have you maybe seen this happen in your priesthood? Throwing the hard balls right out of the gates here.
2: You you had to start with this question? Could have given me something a little easier. We're in this situation because we've left Christendom. You know, when when the values were proclaimed by the church, by the bank, by the hospital, by um, the um, school, when, we, when it was, they were all influenced, even in our country, by a, such a strong Judeo-Christian set of values, the truth was not picked at as much. Now we have lots of groups, lots of people, thinking that every one of their opinions is equal to the greatest opinion. That's God's opinion. Um, and Okay, we don't want to disrespect for you, so we honor you uh, and take you where you are. That's caused a great deal of this, what you call deconstruction of truth. Um, No different, shall we say, than what was happening in the early church. You know, you could put a Jew next to a Greek, and there would be two very different ways to look at the world. Truth would be very different. And Christianity literally bridged that gap, bridged the gap between Jew and Greek, Uh, took the best of Greek philosophy and made it part of our tradition, took the great history of the Jewish people, and we were born of them in the Christian faith. So we have to be in the place now to Find the right way to talk about truth. Truth is, you know, we believe in our faith, in the church, that God is truth. You know, the person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the truth. And so the lessons that come directly from God are truth. Now... You will run into people who don't quite see it that way because of uh, their experience in this world choices that they have made um, and so we have to a always have great dignity and respect for them as a person but be able to engage them in conversation about who they are and when they talk about, you know, something that would stem far from the truth of the gospel. um, How did you get to come to this? You know, often you find out, how did you get here? And that will help us, help them to come back to see the root of truth, the experience of Christ, the teachings of Christ. It is not easy, I will tell you that much. And it is not a short process. But the only way to conquer this trouble is one person at a time. You know, I, I, you know, I know that people have great strategies to change, uh, you know, societal thinking and all of these areas. You know, we'll be working on that for 100 years. Well, we may be doing it the other way 100 years too, but we will have changed people's lives by literally, I think, following that little three-step process, you know, win, build,
0: and send. Fabulous. Very incisive and clear. Questions and comments. Just really opening this up.
1: I'm Sonia. Um, Are we in a more of a challenging situation? Because in the first apostolic age, you said we had purity in the church. And today we have seen a lot of confusion within the church. You know, we have bishops in Germany blessing same-sex unions. We have confusion within people in the faith, the everyday Catholics that you meet that don't go with the teachings. Like, how do we? Is this this is more of a challenge than? Would you agree or?
2: Well, it's. Um It is a great challenge, and it is a great challenge for us today because we know what's happening in all those parts of the world. In the early age of the church, we had no idea. We only knew what was happening right here, you know, right where the church was. One country, you know, 11 bishops. That's it. Um, And what's happened is obviously the great blessing of the growth of the church worldwide, uh all over, all kinds of countries, and the growth of communication, we now know what happens in all those countries. And we know every day you can, can read the, what this group is doing or that group is doing, which we never could do before. So it is more challenging today. Um, and it's, um, a, a greater challenge is, I think, um, you know, the church the church is not a democracy, you know, and and we're accustomed in our country to be a democracy. It's not. Jesus didn't make it that way. It wasn't a democracy for him. Uh, It isn't isn't a democracy uh, down through the ages. Um, But people uh, certainly work very hard to influence uh, the church because we're used to influencing and using the power of democracy in the public world, and we try to do that in the church. And you know, everyone in the church is a frail a sinner, you know, whether you are the pope or a bishop or a priest or any other member. And so we can become um, engaged in that kind of activity, um, and it's just real, and it, it provides much greater challenge, I would say.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Hi, um, uh, Rich Cron. You've been a priest for 30 years, and um, over that time, you've gone from a transition from uh, Christendom
2: now to an apostolic, more of an apostolic age. So you were trained in the time when we were in Christendom, and now things have changed dramatically. How is it, priest, to you? with uh, about how to adapt to this. well I would say all of that is very true we uh, we uh, I uh, my experience in the priesthood has kind of bridged the those those gaps when I started off I was uh, I went, was sent to high school that's my it's my first assignment and uh, in Fremont Ohio and uh, I lived at the church across the street and we had people coming out of our ears. We had five weddings a weekend. There were 10 priests in the little town of Fremont, Ohio. Um, there are two now in that, in that city and that's it. Uh, churches aren't full. It's very, very different. Uh, and the challenges are different for us as well. Um, while um, we have the assistance of many more talented laity taking responsibility in the church, which is a great blessing, I think, to pastors. Uh, At that time, we didn't, you know, I think about our staff. We had, when I was at Fremont St. Joe's, we had four priests, uh, and we, all the jobs were parceled out between the priests, and you had a secretary, you know, so we had to do all the work. Uh, We necessarily weren't trained to do all the work, but nonetheless, it fell to us. So there is a plus that we have many more people who are trained to work in the life of the church, which is a blessing, but the challenges are greater. Um, you know, we have to, we have to think about um, promotional programs. We need to think about running social media operations. Um, of course, you know, the finances of communities. You have to run your buildings. You have to be an educator to run your school. Uh, there's still all those challenges there, and they're even greater now uh, because the challenges um, reaching out to the life of our members and the people of God in general are so much greater. We need to figure out as a church how to countermand those and bring the truth to those situations and those people, and so it, it's just a greater challenge. You know, I, I love um, Pope John the Twenty-Third. Um, my, it's a great story about my life. Uh, my, mo- I'm the firstborn of my family and the firstborn of my generation. And my mother, who was the oldest of about seven kids, uh, and she was pregnant. Uh, Pius the twelfth died, and she proclaimed that she would not have her first child unless we have a pope. She was very public about it. I was two weeks late. John the 23rd was elected. She went into labor within 30 minutes of his election, and I was born six hours later. So I have always had a great affinity for John the 23rd. John the 23rd said every night when he was Pope, before he got into bed, he said, uh, Lord, the church is yours. I've taken care of it as best I can today, and I'll pick it up in the morning, but until then, it's all yours." And he went to bed. I think priests would drive themselves crazy, and some have, trying to do all of this all of the time. We can only do what we can do. And we have to make sure that we surround ourselves with gifted people who can pick up all of our lack of ability uh, to make a complete picture and I think that's the challenge that's before us and that's the way we have to continue to move on.
0: You've been listening to a very special production of Ignite Radio Live, our fifth episode of Belief in Beverage series featuring Monsignor Michael Billion. We warmly welcome you to plug into our movement at ilovemyfamily.us, free resources to more fully discover God alive in our marriages and families. We invite you to please consider prayerfully partnering with us. Click on that partner tab again at ilovemyfamily.us. Until next time. God bless you.